0: Hey guys, this is Colin from Blackjack Apprenticeship, and I am joined with a couple professional APs. We got Joe748 and Nichols. How are you doing, Nichols? I'm hanging in there. How are you doing, Colin? I'm doing pretty well. Uh, Getting over a a, a little virus that my kids gave me. But other than that, I'm good. What about you, Joe748? Looks like you're hanging out at El Cortez as per usual.
1: That's my usual Zoom background, El Cortez, home of the only single three to two blackjack in Vegas. Yeah, still. Probably.
2: Did uh, Silverton get rid of their single deck that paid three to two?
0: I don't know. Silverton, like, is it even worth bothering stopping in there? I mean,
2: no, they're going to drop the deck when you jump your bet, but.
0: Yeah. So I haven't been in there since the one time I tried playing there, (laughs) raised my bet, got backed off. Why bother going back? But hey, maybe they've got three to two. If you're a ploppy and you want a decent single deck game, check it out. Well, let's get into, we got a long list of questions here. We're going to see what we can get to. We'll start off with just some kind of basic card kind questions. These questions come from either email or I asked on the Blackjack Apprenticeship YouTube community tab. I got a lot of questions there, which is great. I asked on Twitter and got like one because I don't... Hang out on Twitter or put effort into it, and then uh, and then some are from our forum or our our uh, BJ chat room. So if you guys asked a question, that's great. We're going to try to do these every month or two, do some sort of Q and A. Q&A. So let's jump into it. This first one, this was from the YouTube community tab, and it's my favorite one because it's not a question. It simply says, "I'm great with math, but I'll never understand counting cards. Pretty good at blackjack still. <laughs> so even though it's not a question, it's worth bringing up, which is you're not pretty good at blackjack still. If anyone's listening and uh, you think that you're pretty good at blackjack, but you don't have basic strategy or card counting or winning best spread or good money management, you're not good at blackjack. So gotta get that out of the way. Moving on. Someone wants to know why our blackjack apprenticeship basic strategy says to double down our 11 versus a dealer's ace, but not to double a 10 versus 10. Um, it says some basic strategy tables recommend doubling 10 versus 10. I'm not aware of a basic strategy, so that says to double a 10 versus 10, but uh, do either of you guys know why you would double an 11 versus an ace, which technically is more in a hit 17 game than a stand 17 game? We have kind of a generic, for those wondering, we have a generic basic strategy, so you don't have to learn two basic strategies, because really what you should do is learn the deviations. Basic strategy is like step one, and then learn the deviations where it separates when to double 11 versus an ace. But anyway... Nickels are just some for a why double 11 versus ace, but not 10 versus 10. The
2: why answer is which is the case with most of these is just that the expected value of one decision is better than the expected value of another decision, and I think you'll drive yourself crazy looking for the logic in every play. This one's pretty simple in this case, 11 versus ace is pretty obviously a better situation than 10 versus 10. So, like, they're not all that comparable. 11 you have a four and 13 shot of making 21 with an ACE up where they've already checked for blackjack. So we know four of 13 possibilities are gone from the dealer. And with 10 versus 10, we only know that there's not an ACE in the hole um, rather than the four out of 13 tens. And then our four and 13 chance is only to pull a 20, not a 21 on a 10 versus. Yeah. So I think that one's like pretty easy to figure out the logic in, but with pretty much anything that seems unintuitive, I think the go-to answer is just the expected value of this decision is better than the expected value of that decision, and you can just leave it at that. Yeah, just trust the math.
0: There are some hands, like some of the soft doubles, that are a little counterintuitive. Like, why is it better to double a soft 16 rather than a soft 12 or 13 when you just consider you're not counting uh, 7, 8? but I don't know. I just trust the math and it's worked out well for me to just trust the math and not second guess it. If you're finding a basic strategy that says to double 10 against a the 10, then that is like either a really dumbed down or just flat out wrong
1: basic strategy. Yeah. I mean, some of the basic strategy, little charts that they sell at the gift shop for way too much money. Some of the stuff on there is just wacky. Like some of the decisions they have on those little cards. All right, next
0: question. Generally, do you update the true count for your playing deviations after the cards have come out or between rounds? Seems hard to have a deviating hand be dealt to you than to update the true count in real time to decide whether to deviate or not. So, (laughs) I mean, I have my answer, but I want to hear from you guys between rounds or when you have all the cards out for true count?
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely when there's a decision to be made and there's going to be a specific number associated with your decision, you have to update the true count in those moments. You can't just rely on the round because you could have had like 10 or 15 smaller high cards come out in that one round in between the decisions. So, yeah, the the way
0: that, that we've always thought about is all available information. Every card is information you want to take into the consideration. Now, unfortunately for whoever's asking, you have to do it both. You like, you have to calculate the true count between rounds for your betting, but then you have to calculate it again if you're given a deviation hand. Now you don't have to calculate it for every hand, but just when it's one of the you know, deviation hands, but absolutely. And my advice to someone that says, well, that sounds hard, which is what he says in the question is like, it is hard, but that's why we practice. And I would say, I don't know, 99%, maybe that's a little dramatic, 95% of people that I deal to would benefit from being faster at card counting. And when you're very fast at card counting, I mean, updating the rank count and true count conversion, then it's really not that hard. Every pro that I know is updating the true count for every deviation hand.
1: The only time I'll be lazy about it is if, let's say it is a true three before the round starts and then um, the ace comes up, but then all you see is like low cards, then I'll just put the insurance out there already because I know I'm at a true three and I know I just glanced for a half of a second. I see that it's all low cards, so I'm not going to. And you don't
2: want the dealer to run past you and check for blackjack before you get the insurance bet out there too, with that one.
0: The other exception, and this comes with experience is, you know, you know, it's like a true five and it's a deviation. That's a, at a true one, you know, I don't have to say like, okay, what exactly is my true count? I know it's well above, or, you know, you, you know, that you've got max bets out, you've got true six bets out and it's just you and the dealer. And an ACE comes up and you're able to very quickly say, oh, well, I am buying insurance. I'm not sure if it dropped to a true five or, or not, but it is an insurance decision. But the bottom line is, if you're having a hard time with this, you you got to get faster at, at counting and true count conversion.
2: Yeah. And I think that one just, it sounds more daunting than it is too, because when the round starts, you already know what your divisor is. You already have a, and you already have a true count, like, it's not that difficult if you know your divisor is 3 to know okay did my count change by more than 3
0: yeah but for the vast majority of people they they've got more practicing to do if if you're having a hard time which was all of us at the beginning so don't feel you know like embarrassed by it but all of us need a lot more practice than than we had when we first went into a casino all right next question I'd like the point of view from the pros regarding Spanish 21 blackjack. Actually, someone asked me this on the phone yesterday too. Uh, is it worth it? What rules should you look for and avoid, et cetera? Have, have either of you done any Spanish 21?
2: It's not a game available around the areas I play, so I don't really have anything to add here. Okay, well, I can answer this
0: one. Okay. There's a few things. I actually knew a team in my area that was focusing on Spanish 21 for a while. This was about 15-ish years ago. And there are a couple of things you need to know. One is it's a different basic strategy. It's a much more complicated basic strategy. So don't say, I know basic strategy. I know how to count. I'm going to play it. Like, no, you need to know Spanish 21 basic strategy. Another thing is, she said, what rules should you look for? There are two rule sets that can make it worth it in air quotes. (laughs) Uh, One of them is double, double down. And that's what we, you know, I'm not frequenting the casinos here in Washington state these days, but back in the day, that's what they had. And that's what these guys were focusing on casinos that had double, double down. So what that might look like is you've got a nine against a six, you double down, you get a two. Well, now you have an 11 against a six. You could double-double-down, which would be put two more bets out there. That helped the player's edge. The other is stand 17, Spanish 21, which I know at some point could be found on the East Coast. I'm really not sure these days. But otherwise, the house edge is probably going to be too high to be worth it. Even with those rules, it's a higher variance game than regular card counting. So if you think the variance of blackjack sucks, well, Spanish 21 is going to be worse. The reason that this team focused on it is because at the time casinos, at least some casinos didn't know it could be beat. And so, yeah, higher variance, but it's kind of like what Nichols was saying about video poker. Like, well, if they're just going to let you go from five bucks to, you know, multiple spots of table max, you know, these guys were, were doing that. Whether you can do that, I, I don't know. If you are interested in Spanish 21, there's a book by Katerina Walker. I think
2: it's like the prose guide to Spanish 21 and pontoon or something like that.
0: Okay. Katerina Walker, she wrote a book on it maybe 15 or 20 years ago, but to be honest, I know a lot of APs, I really don't know anyone focusing on Spanish 21, but there could be, there could be some people out there and they're probably not going to be talking about it if they are.
1: be a good chance to double your 10 versus 10.
0: Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Except there's even fewer 10s in that. So I don't know. Does that make it worse? I I don't know. Next question. So this is about resizing people want to know if they should resize their bankroll as it grows even if you're ahead of EV kind of this thought is like oh man my bankroll has grown 30% but i haven't generated as much EV as my
1: profits should i wait what would you guys say to that i would just balance that time frame how, how much time are we talking here like if it was zero above EV and it's only been like you know 50 hours or something i probably wouldn't jump to resize that quickly
2: Nichols, what are your thoughts? There's two parts of it. Like one part of this is sort of an a mental emotional thing where you don't want to like size up too quickly and faster than you're ready when you're not acclimating to the stakes you're playing yet. But there's also this part of it that has to do with a misunderstanding of expected value, where it's like each shoe is still an independent trial. So whatever happened in the past, like just because you won above your ev early on doesn't mean you're going to come crashing down by losing like it'll even out over time but how it happens you don't know right i mean like gross says do is not in the numerator it's in the denominator so whether you're ahead of ev or not at a given moment doesn't matter that much mathematically it really just kind of matters in okay i just shot up in those first 50 hours like joe was saying but I'm still kind of getting used to this. I'm not used to playing these stakes or playing at all, maybe. Do I really want to dig a hole with an excavator and fill it in with a plastic spoon, right? Yeah. One of the iterations
0: of the MIT team would phone in their results every day. Every day, people would get on a payphone, you know, this is in the 90s or whatever, and call in their results from the night before, like, oh, I'm up 7,000 or I'm down 12,000 or whatever. And the manager would calculate it, and call everybody back and say, here's our new betting unit today. And that was mathematically correct. That's optimal betting is as your investment grows, you bet more. As your investment shrinks, you bet less. The reason I've not recommended that is is to what both of you have spoken to, which is if you're a robot, that's great. But there's just gonna be a lot of swings. And in my experience, like, do you really wanna be like thinking... We did this, my first team, I had a little Excel spreadsheet with Wong's formula and and it would be, you know, a $25 betting unit one day and a $30 betting unit the next day and then a $20 betting unit the next day. And it was like mentally taxing and emotionally exhausting. And so we found that it worked a lot better to say, hey, unless we are up, you know, a significant amount or down 20%, 25%, we're just going to play for a bit, <laughs> But yeah, mathematically, sure, you could resize it every day if you're if you're just a computer. We've found on the forum, correct me if I'm wrong, Nichols, but on the BJ forum, we've found a lot more people can't handle the emotional swings than you'd expect. People will say, "Oh, I've got a bankroll of ten thousand, fifty thousand, whatever," and they don't have to lose ten thousand or fifty thousand to give up. They lose half their bankroll, or even. of their bankroll. And they say, this isn't for me. So please
1: think through that before thinking that you're going to have, you know, nerves of steel. And you're also just one person. You're, you're one player. So you could fall anywhere in the line of statistical (laughs) chances. Like it's, it's not like you're a casino that has like 20 different tables playing against five different people at each table. So they can kind of level out their variance so much quicker. It's so think about that too. You're just.
0: Yeah. What did you call it? Dig a hole with the, with a tractor and filled in with the plastic spoon.
2: Yeah. I, I think I'm remembering a uh, Richard Munchkin quote when I say that I'm, I think that's where it came from, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. Yeah. I mean, that is real. I've got multiple anecdotes
0: that I won't share right here, but people that I know, like APs that I know that were losing and said, well, I won't keep losing. And then they kept losing <laughs> and what it took to get back to their original betting unit was a lot of very small bets because they got down so much. Or the worst case scenario, I tell a story in my book about, you know, a boot camp grad that was a perfect player and he just didn't think he could keep losing until he lost his entire bankroll. And so that's where we always recommend resizing if you're down 20, 25%, something in that range. Like swallow your pride, downsize, Until you're back to a good amount rather than digging that deeper hole. Okay, next question. This person says, I'm curious as an AP, should you start with the same bankroll every time? I don't even know what that means. If they mean every time they go out and play a session, should you go out with the same bankroll? But for someone that clearly they're not thinking about bankroll maybe the way that we do. Nichols, how would you define a bankroll?
2: It's interesting because I think gamblers have a different definition of bankroll from advantage players. And so when someone is getting into card counting for the first time, if they're still using that terminology, it gets a little confusing because a a lot of times a gambler will say, I went to Vegas and I brought a thousand dollar gambling bankroll. But when we're talking about card counting or any other form of advantage play, your bankroll is like the total amount that you have in store that you want to put into this game or this endeavor. So maybe you have 50,000 that you can lose, but you're not taking that 50,000 with you to the casino every single time you go to a casino. And the 50,000 is a bankroll. Um, what you take with you could be considered a session roll or a trip roll or whatever. But an AP's bankroll is different from a gambler's bankroll just by the very definition of the word. Just
0: some for you, how do you determine your AP bankroll? All my assets and everything I own
1: lumped together.
0: So if you have money in in like a stock market, that you consider that part of your AP bankroll?
1: Yeah, I I basically would, yeah. What about
0: your uh, $3,000 tripod?
1: I sold the tripod head and I got a much cheaper one. So (laughs) now I have a bigger bankroll. Now I can bet a little bit of larger unit. So the tripod
0: would have been outside of your bankroll. <laughs> yeah.
1: No, but I think that, I think they are talking about just what you go to the casino with. And usually it's the same for me every time I, you know, if I'm walking into a place that has a lot lower max, then maybe I just won't bring as much and keep the rest in the safe or something, but cause I don't, I don't need to bring like 30 grand to a hundred dollar max table.
0: Well, so that brings up a good point. You know, we use bank software for all of this. If a bankroll is all the money that you can afford to put towards advantage play, that's your bankroll. And we use betting software. We've got the pro bank software and the Blackjack apprenticeship membership, there's CVCX, CV data. You use that to figure out how to keep your risk low with your entire investment into advantage play. But then there's a trip bankroll, which is how much you bring to a casino, and we also use software for that. So there's a trip bankroll section of the pro betting software. There's a trip bankroll widget in CVCX. And so with that, you can say, how much do I really need? A trip can be going to your local casino for two hours, or it can be going to Vegas for a week. And you want to say, how many hours am I playing? I'm playing. How do I expect to bet? And when you input those like, oh, I'm going to play 20 hours in Vegas over five days, and I'm going to be betting these limits. With this bet spread, it'll tell you if you bring ten grand, is that going to be enough? Do I need to bring twenty grand, or you know, a thousand dollars, whatever it may be? But we we don't guess at it; it's database decisions. So you need bank software if you're going to take card counting seriously, is what all.
1: Yeah, because the worst thing is like you flew to a place and then you lose what you brought because you didn't calculate enough. But there's like zero heat, and you could tell that they just don't care. So then you now you have to spend like probably over $700 round trip to come go come back with money, you know.
0: The walk of shame to the car where you ran out of trip bankroll. I've had that only a couple times because, you know, usually... But there is some, some determining. I might actually have a little bit higher trip risk, like 5%, because I don't want to be walking around with more cash than I need to. So I'd rather have, you know, I'm going to keep my my overall bankroll risk really low 1% or half a percent or whatever. Um, I'm willing to take a little bit more risk of just on a given trip. Maybe I have to downsize my bets towards the end of the trip. Cause I don't really like walking around with more cash than I need to, but I hate that walk of shame. Uh, next question is it worth playing a double deck where they cut off more than one deck, like 1.1 decks like they, they deal 0.9 decks
2: out of two. Would you guys play that? If like a couple of conditions are met aside from that, like, One, I have to be able to play the game heads up. And two, it has to be a decent rule set. There can't be anything like no double after split or 10, 11 only or any goofy stuff like that. And even then, it's sort of questionable. Like if there's another place nearby, I'm going to go check that place out. But if that's the only game available, I would provided again that like I can play it heads up and the rule set is acceptable
1: whenever they've done that to me i've never played a 1.1 cut off of two i've always had to pass because usually on the double deck games they make the rules a little bit worse anyway before they start cutting 1.1 so then by the time they cut 1.1 then it's basically like not worth it compared to your options because the a double deck game when it's cut completely one deck you know 50 percent in half then essentially it's kind of turned into now like an average six deck game equivalent and then if you do the one point one, it really like makes it worse. I mean, if yeah, if there's some weird good rule that offset it, that's the only time I've never seen it.
0: Yeah, again, like these got to be software based decisions. Get betting software and let that determine it. I could give you like I would say my rule of thumb is I don't know if I've ever played a game that dealt less than a deck out of two, but I've also played a half shued six deck game when it had something else that made it worth playing but uh it was a data driven decision it was a betting software or simulation driven decision so don't guess at this stuff you got to know you got to know is the ev the risk of ruin the n0 is all of that worth it and the software can tell you all of that all right we got one last question it says talk about cutting the shoe specifically cutting small or large cards to the back or front if you see them <laughs> This one's a little bit tough. I don't know if they're saying cards, plural. I don't know when you would see if it's a hand shuffle and you know, then what What would you do? If, if there were some small cards, would you want to cut them to the front or the back of the shoe?
2: Yeah, so I don't know how much there is to say on this. I'm going to assume just that you're seeing one card. Because I'm not sure how you would see multiple, like maybe if they do the old dovetail and you can remember exactly what you saw when they um, riffled them. But yeah, like if if it's a small card, cut it out of play and start your count at plus one. And, you know, there's... There's a lot of stuff you can do with that that requires a ton of practice. I don't know that I want to go down that rabbit hole right here, but in general, yeah, I mean, cut the small ones out of play and cut the big ones into play if you know that they're there.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, basically, if, if you haven't spent hundreds of hours practicing watching shuffles, you probably don't need to be messing around with trying to guess cutting based on what you saw at a hand shuffle. Like, Yes,
0: that's what I was going to say. I think there are a lot of like, oh, I saw something and so I know what to do with it. And that's pseudo advantage play. (laughs) And it's really tempting. You know, I remember playing a hand shuffle game in my card can career and I did not know how to shuffle track or uh, sequence or, you know, cut to a certain card. But I saw it and I was like, ooh, I'm going to track this through the shuffle And I was so wrong on it. It was like, I was doing the opposite of what I was supposed to do, which just my point is, okay, if you see something, you can investigate away from the casino, if there's a way to gain an advantage with it, and then you need to put in the the practice and the work. So shuffle trackers cookbook or whatever, like this is into like secret knowledge. The point is though, you get that book, you open to the very first drill and you're going to spend 50 hours practicing the very first skill that is the skill before you can even learn how to shuffle track. So please don't come up with a pseudo advantage play if you see something in a casino, but do think, oh, if I could always have the small cards behind the cut card, that would be great. Or if I always put the small cards in the front, Oh, that would be bad. I you know, um just you could think through that and then you need to really investigate and put in the work of can you use it to your advantage? And or is it a like once you saw something, what do you do? Well, probably not much.
1: Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's if you're shuffle tracking 100% accurately, the difference in the edge is it like 3% versus a card coning's average 1% on average, like th- about 3% edge shuffle tracking.
2: There's a um segment at the back of the shuffle trackers cookbook that discusses that for like different numbers of decks and what kind of shuffle it is but roughly that's about right yeah
1: okay so yeah so don't assume that like let's say you took a shot you know but you cut out a bunch of small cards. don't think that it's now become like a 50 percent edge game and you can just wing it because you have this amazing huge edge like three percent still good but it's not like a 50 percent
0: Yeah. I would say for every card counter, there's a thousand people out there that are like dabbling in card counting. That'll never have the edge. And I'd say for every person that sees something like some small cards or whatever, for every person that knows what to do with it, there's a thousand people that are playing around thinking they know what they're doing with it. And so that's, that's my advice. Talk about cutting the shoe, see if, if it, intuitively makes sense that it could be a value. And then you've got to like master a whole other skill to put it into practice. So I think that's more than enough information for for this. Nichols, you've transitioned over, over the years. You started as an AP, what, five, six years ago, and you've done quite a bit of video poker over the last few years. Can you give people an idea of what's different about video poker compared to card counting?
2: Yeah, so there's a lot of things. I'll try to keep it short. I mean, for starters, it's just a completely different game. But I'd say like, as far as um, taking advantage of it, one of the biggest ones is just that the opportunities are a little tougher to find. You have to scout for them a little more diligently. With Blackjack, you can find a game to play in pretty much any Class 3 gaming market. Even if it's not a great game, you could still beat it video poker you need a more specific set of circumstances you can't just like learn a strategy go find the game and sit down and start playing it you need a little more than that i'd also say that video poker is just a higher variance game to put it in perspective in blackjack our jackpot so to speak is a hand that pays three to two and we see it Roughly 1 in twenty, one in 21 hands, and in video poker, our jackpot is a royal flush that we only see 1 in 40,000 hands, and that's worth 2% of the overall return. So unless you have a situation where your edge is bigger than 2%, you're going to be just bleeding money in between royal flushes. So you lose way more sessions than you win, but when you win, it's big happy time with a royal flush. She said one in 40,000 hands? Roughly. It depends on which video poker game, because um, that'll change the strategy you play. And the strategy that you play will impact the frequency of actually getting the Royal Flush. But one in 40,000 is like a good rule of thumb. Like it'll be a little longer on a game like Deuces Wild or Joker Poker. It'll be right around 40,000 for a game like Jack's or better. How long does it take to play 40,000 hands? It depends on how well you know the strategy and what kind of working order the buttons are in. A good video poker player with a good machine, like with buttons that are all working, can play about a thousand hands an hour. So 40 hours or so, if you're like really proficient and you've played a while, Um, if you're like just starting out and like you know the strategy but you have to stop and think about it once in a while or maybe like one of the buttons isn't working that well you might only be playing 800 hands an hour maybe even less maybe only 500 hands an hour so for me it's about once every like on a single line game because there are there's also video poker where you have like You're playing multiple hands at once. They all have the same starting hand, but you get to draw like 10 times. You'll get them more often in that game because you're playing 10 hands at once. So it's more like one in 4,000. On a standard like single line game, though, like for me, it'd be about once every 40 hours, I would expect one, which, I mean, you could still get two in that cycle, or you could get none in that cycle. That's just sort of the average. So we're talking, you
0: know... On average, every 40 hours, as opposed to every 10 to 15 minutes for a blackjack. And then there's variance there where it could be so a thousand. So, yeah, 40 hours. So, yeah,
2: it could, I don't know what the variance is. Can it be 500 or a thousand hours? Well, because all the hands are independent, I guess it could uh, be pretty rare. Like, probably the worst I've had is a four, five cycle drought. So, that would be. 160,000 to 200,000 hands without a Royal flush. And life's not very fun when that happens, <laughs> but it can happen. That's about the longest I've had. And if you play as much video poker as I do, it will happen to you eventually. So just like with blackjack, like you will have a hundred hour or more losing streak at some point if you play for a long time.
0: And you also have to play rated if you're doing video poker.
2: Yes, So video poker is, like, if you have a progressive jackpot or something like that, like, you might be beating the game on its own, but typically you're using video poker as an avenue to get to the player's club, basically. So you're not really beating video poker, you're beating the player's club, and video poker is the street you take to get there. So there's not really a discussion about playing rated or not. It's You pretty much have to. There's a few games out there where... They return more than 100 percent with perfect play, something like 107 double bonus, but a 0.17 or whatever percent edge it is, just like that's not big enough. Like you you want to play rated even with that, you know. So yeah, you're giving up your name like hundred percent of the time when you're doing video poker. I'd also add that just like there's another difference is that you have a lot more complex strategies that you have to learn, and like you have to learn different strategies for different games. And there's some games where just on that game, you need to learn a few different strategies. So like deuces wild would be an example of that where you don't just have like a strategy for deuces wild. You have a strategy for how many wilds are in your starting hand. So like your strategy is different if you have two deuces versus one deuce versus no deuce. So like if you have two deuces, you're a little less aggressive about going for straight flushes because well, you've already got two of the four deuces. So there's there's going to be some times that you go for the straight flush and times that you go for the four deuces, but you're going to be a lot less aggressive about the straight flushes with two deuces or three deuces.
1: When you hit the royal flushes, are they typically the same amount? Like what well, how big are these royal flushes that you're you're getting paid out on? So
2: typically a Royal Flush is going to pay 4,000 credits. So that depends on what denomination the game is. If it's, say, a dollar game, then it's going to be $4,000 for a Royal. That's assuming there's, you know, no progressive. Like sometimes you have a progressive on there that you're chasing, and that'll be like a bigger amount. And then if you're playing a multi-line game, you might get more than one Royal Flush at a time, right? Like you're dealt four to the Royal, and you connect on two of them or... I mean, three or more would be pretty rare, but something like that, or you get dealt one, so you have the royal on every hand. but like each one is still four thousand credits. It's just that they all happen at the same time.
0: What about the financial swings? You know, like, um, I'm just thinking, okay, if I want to generate a hundred an hour as a card counter, I'm gonna expect swings of three, five thousand a session, you know, maybe sometimes a bit more. If you want to generate 100 an hour at video poker, what what kind of financial swings can you expect?
2: It depends a little bit on which game it is and what the opportunity is. I've had some where I've had like a bigger than 2% edge where, I mean, even in between Royals, you're mostly breaking even. But, you know, if it's a higher variance game, like a double bonus variant, you'll still have swings of maybe... Like on that game, I remember the, the swing still being, you know, eight thousand to ten thousand in a session. And that was a fairly low limit game too. But it was, you know, that was a two-dollar denomination game. So ten dollars and and then there's also been some that like typically if you're gonna if you're getting more than a hundred dollars an hour, you're playing pretty high stake. Well, for video poker anyways. So like ten dollar denomination or like dollar ten play, something like that. And that's with a smaller edge. So like those swings, I mean, I've run as bad as, you know, losing like 25,000 in a day or something like that. So five figure swings at that level are pretty common.
1: Okay. So when you hit the Royal and they come over and they're like, oh my God, wow, look at, how do you handle the tipping awkwardness with the Royal? It depends on the
2: situation and like how often I'm hitting that place. Like if it's a if it's a one-time thing and I don't think they're going to like run that promotion again or I don't think I'm going to be back there again, then I might just take my money and say, "Well, thank you." But if it's like a place that I'm going to a lot and they're running some sort of recurring thing that's good for me, and I don't want to um, draw the attention because it's not just the Royals that'll generate hand pays. Like if you're playing um $5 denomination game, let's say like $5 bonus poker, like you're also getting hand pays on the four aces. So it's not just the Royals. It's also like every 5,000 hands when you get the four aces. And so something like that, if it's an ongoing thing, I'll still, I will tip a slot tech provided... They actually provided a good service and got to me quickly and took care of it and didn't try to hustle me by giving me like 300 bucks in 20s. Cause that's a really common hustle with that is they'll pay the last little bit in 20s and hope that you like peel off some of the smaller bills for them. So if I'm going back there a lot and I know those people and they're doing a good job, I'll tip them a little bit, but I still don't want to. But the edge can be so small sometimes that it's like a really difficult decision to tip anything at all because it's like, you know, I've got like a half a percent edge. And do I really want to tip like 1% of a jackpot when I only have a half percent edge? You know, it gets tricky. My rule of thumb is like no more than 1% of a jackpot. And it has to be like an actual jackpot. It can't be like $1,200 exactly. And they understand that like most gamblers aren't going to tip on 1,200 exactly. They're more pissed off that they got a w2g than they are happy they won something
1: have you ever been backed off or countermeasured for video poker like what does that look like it's
2: quite a bit different from blackjack in that regard too because like card counting is probably it's not like the number one priority of surveillance people but it's probably the number one advantage play thing they know to look out for so they're pretty quick on the card counters but with video poker it's like not really on their radar and they, it takes them a little bit of time to figure it out. So, and most of the time they won't 86 the player. I mean, they will. Sometimes I've had that happen, but usually what they'll do is they'll just, okay, where is the money leaving? Oh, it's from this set of cabinets. Let's change the pay table, for example, you know, like usually it's something like that, or maybe they'll cut off, Like if it was a promotion, they'll cut off the promotion. And every now and then they won't like necessarily 86 a player, but they'll like lock the player's card account, you know, so like you can't access your player's club account or maybe they stop sending you free play or whatever it is.
1: What's the uh, upside of video poker?
2: (laughs) The upside is that they're not really looking for it. So, I mean, you can play it a lot longer. The thing card counters lament about is getting kicked out after like an hour session, right? Like they can't get in more than an hour at a time in Vegas. They have to keep hopping from casino to casino or they have to keep traveling all the time. The upside to video poker is because it takes them longer to figure it out. Sometimes you find a play and you just go to that place for a year before they figure it out. And then once they do, you're gone, but you're like an invited guest and nobody's going to hassle you for but as long as it takes me to figure it out, sometimes that's a couple months, sometimes that's a week or two, sometimes it's a whole year or more. The downside is when they do figure
0: it out, it's it's your player's card, a card counter. You come back next trip to Vegas and you recycle all the same places. You kind of go back and forth. You'll start hitting the blackjack tables for a bit and then you'll hit the video poker machines for a bit. Is it just kind of like, well, everything gets mind numbingly old after a while. So you hop back between
2: the the skills. I think that's part of it. And then some of it's just a matter of finding a video poker opportunity that's like one advantageous and two is worthwhile enough. Cause like there's a few places where I played them where it was when I had like a 2% or more edge or played them when I had closer to a 1% edge. I could still eke an edge out of it, but it's like, is a, two tenths of a percent edge really worth my time and two tenths of a percent you know on some of those games that's like oh 20 bucks an hour i can make 20 bucks an hour just even like red shipping at blackjack i could make 20 bucks an hour so why would i put all this money at risk for 20 bucks an hour thanks for sharing it was something i kind of always wanted to get into but it's
0: not a thing in washington state and uh my ap career it was either local or short trips. And so it never, never made sense for me, but, but it is a fascinating thing to try to, you know, get in inside the head of, I could imagine even just doing something different for a bit when, when you've been a full timer, you know, yeah, just something different. You know, I've played side bets or some different AP things and it's just, can be nice to do something different.
2: Yeah, for sure. Cause I think like starting out with advantage play, it's like at first everything's exciting and then like, the novelty wears off. And it's like, okay, well, I don't really look forward to doing this anymore. What's something else I can do?
0: Thank you guys for your time. If you guys want to learn more, I mean, that's what Blackjack Apprenticeship is all about. We've got a membership video course, a forum that Nichols moderates. We've got betting software, casino database software, results tracking software, and I'm I'm forgetting some of our other software, but check it out and uh, gain the edge. And until next time,
2: we'll uh, be on the forum.